We are into springtime. It is May, and you know what, Mr. Luke Clayton? There's lots of places where whitetail farms are starting to hit the ground, if you will. On my little place out west of Houston away in Texas, the earliest that I've seen farms has been like May the 6th. So uh, it's into farm season from here on, probably all the way into the latter part of July if you're looking at deep south Texas. And if you're looking at the rest of the world, you're really kind of looking at the middle part of May, the latter part of May, when the farms are starting to arrive. So uh, this is a pretty important time when it comes down to white-tailed deer, or for that matter, elk, antelope, mule deer. You need to find that produces things in the spring. You bet. Here by the house, I've never really noticed the exact date, but for years I've noticed when I'm out in the woods around mid usually around mid-May, so on the end of June. I guess it all depends on when uh, when the, the rut happened, at the peak of the rut, when the does right. spread back in the fall. But I've encountered deer. You know, Larry, it's it's amazing. You walk up, walking through the woods, which I, I spend a lot of time uh, near the house here in, in the woods hunting the right. hogs. And I just get out there. There's actually some exercise, too. I get out and walk maybe a mile, you know, just in, rather than walk on the side of the road, I'm out in the woods walking. Got a little, <laughs> little paths and trails that I, areas I travel, you know, kind of like the deer. But uh, on a couple of occasions on those walks this time of year, I can remember walking up, and usually you'll see a doe back off in the woods, you know, and she'll you'll hear her snort or something, she'll run back out of sight. A couple of times I've seen little baby baby fawns there. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, they, they will leave them and... They, I, I guess that that those far, those uh, doe probably stay within pretty close. I know they don't run off, but they hide themselves. And then when I'm sure when you when you leave, when they need to go back and nurse that fawn, they do. But the key is not to disturb that fawn, isn't it? it you're exactly right. You know, I will tell you that a lot of times you hear about the fact that all of those young fawns do not have any kind of smell or odor, and I seriously, seriously doubt that. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, to me, the farther you can stay away from them, I'm sure that in some instances, coyotes and bobcats, those kind of things, will follow human tracks as well, too, and yeah. particularly out in the woods. And so the last thing you want to do, if it's any way possible, is, is to disturb that fawn to make it jump and run. And usually those first, with that first eight or nine days, those fawns, it's just a ingrained genetic thing, I guess, that they will just lay there. And when they get up to be about, Oh, maybe approaching that two-week period of time, they will jump and run. And a lot of times that's when we lose them to, uh, to coyotes when those uh, critters are out, you know, and walking around. And all of a sudden that fawn sees something, and rather than lay there like he has been doing, let that coyote walk by, it'll jump and run. So it's the same thing with, with humans. Uh, when we are out looking in the woods like that or we find a fawn, a lot of times people will find when they go, oh, my God, the mom's abandoned it. Something's happened to yep. it. You know, we got to do this. And so, uh, no, probably in all likelihood that doe or that mother or that fawn is only out there about 50, 75 yards peeking around a tree somewhere, you know, knowing where that fawn is and watching what's going on. So this thing is if you do see one, is just kind of look at it from as far away as you possibly can and keep right on walking. Yeah, yeah, that that fawn may wind up being the biggest buck you ever shot in four, five, six years. <laughs> that's right. He sure could be. But you're exactly right, and that's something that we forget a lot of times. How important uh, fawn is to the the future. You know, one of the things that I do 
when I get ready to go hunt a place that I'm not real familiar with, I try to find as much data as I can about that deer herd, about the composition of it in terms of bucks, does, fawns, you know, buck to doe ratio. But I really want to know one of two things, actually, is I want to know, since I really enjoy hunting mature bucks, you know, those four, five, six, seven-year-old deer, I want to know what kind of fawn survival rate there was back those years ago because if there's only like a 10 or 15% fawn survival rate, say, five years ago, there's not going to be a whole lot of five-year-old uh, bucks out there or does. So to me, fawning is so very important in, in terms of even when it, when it comes to hunting. Uh, so, you know, if you're interested in, in, in hunting, you know, older deer, because to me they're more fun to hunt and more challenging, you know, you really need to find out what that fawn survival rate was in the past. And then the second part about that was, you know, what kind of heavy hunting pressure you've got in that area. But uh, in a lot of these places now, the hunting pressure is a little milder. And if there's a decent amount of fawns barn those years ago, there'll be a lot of mature deer out there. Yep, it makes perfect sense, Larry. I've spent a, the last couple of weeks spent a good bit of time outside fishing and then fooling with my feeders and playing with the hogs, as I call it, around where I live. Right. We have had a lot of, of abundance of rain, and I, of course, I live up in North Texas, not too far, about twenty-five miles from Dallas, and uh, but in an area with a lot of wildlife out here. And the the habitat, the the, uh, the range conditions, if you will, should be perfect for turkeys and for, for fawn survival. There is grass up 18 inches high in a lot of areas. It's not grazed right now. So that should be really, really good. We've got a, a restocking of rios out here. Uh, I know they did, they did block stocking a few years ago, but a uh, 15,000-acre ranch <clears throat> that, excuse me, is where they stock the turkeys now they're out three or four miles different directions along the mostly along the trinity drainage east fork and the main trinity but uh yeah so i'm hoping for a great fawn survival because of the vegetation and then the turkeys too larry so looking good around here you know absolutely in this part of the world where you're talking about the increased vegetation that does. There's two things. There's probably more food provided, but there's also ground cover where those those ponds can hide a little bit better and not be seen by predators. And then, secondly, with the turkey population, when we have uh, in our areas here, such as in, in parts of Texas, where now we have really good uh, range conditions, is those turkey poles hatch or those hatch and become poles. Uh, that usually creates a whole lot of insects. So. Those birds, such as turkeys and quail and a few others that really eat a lot of insects, that's really going to help. Now, you mentioned range conditions. I've been involved with uh, a bunch of different ranches up in the northwest. And, and talking about, in my instance, like Colorado and Wyoming and all those places. And, and there, they're having a horrible, horrible year in a lot of different areas because of the heavy snowfall. Uh, a lot of those places will get snowfall, and then it, you know, it melts off and, but that snow has accumulated and envisioned with some of the biologists that I have gotten to know over the years, like in parts of Utah and Colorado and Wyoming and Montana and Idaho, they're experiencing some very, very severe death loss. There's some of those areas up there where they feel like they lost anywhere between 40 to as many as 80 or as high as 80% of their deer herd and uh, uh, their pronghorn antelope herd. They'll have fared well uh, better, I should 
say. Not necessarily well, but fared better because they're longer leg and they can move a lot more. But there's also a study that was done. I was in with Jim Zumbo about this oh, a couple of days ago. Jim lives there in, <coughs> in, in, <coughs> excuse me, lives there in, in, in out west of Cody, and there's a study that's been going on in Wyoming with where they tagged 100 mule deer farms last spring, and they put radio collars on on them we were able to track them and when jim and i were talking about oh probably about uh, three or four weeks ago 98 of those 100 farms new deer farms that were tagged have died so the that's going to make a little bit of difference actually make a lot of difference as far as uh, permits and those kind of things issued from new deer and to some extent pronghorn antelope in a lot of those areas so you know those of the, the, the who hunt out of state or hunt in those states you really want to kind of check to see how those units are faring in terms of farm survival rate or even in, in mortality uh, with, with the heavy, wet, bad weather that we've had this year. So those are range conditions when all that milk is going to be really good. Unfortunately, a lot of the animals will be gone at that point. Yeah, that, that's a shame. Mule deer, uh, I know they're a hardy critter, uh, but it just, you know, I, I've often heard of the great, and I know you, you remember this, uh, I wasn't old enough to really get in on it, to be honest with you. I'm old enough to do, <laughs> to have got in on a lot of stuff, but not this. <laughs> Back in the 50s, uh, I was, I've had old-timers tell me how good the deer hunting was in Colorado. Most people from, many people from Texas would make that jaunt in the 50s and the 60s. And why, uh, the mule deer numbers were astounding out there in Colorado, and I'm sure probably New Mexico too. But those were the, those were really the good old days with mule deer, I think, Larry. Because now, I mean, most of Colorado, which is one of the closest places to hunt them here, from people in in Texas, uh, most of those are draws now, aren't they? Yeah, they really are. The, the mule deer is such an iconic to me. It is <clears throat> to me, it is really that one iconic animal uh, or big game animal as far as the West is concerned. And, <clears throat> They've really kind of taken it on the chin in the last several years. <clears throat> Excuse me. There's a lot of stuff in there. I think he doesn't like me this morning <laughs> as well. But, but uh, you know, they, they, there have been so many changes in terms of habitat. Of course, elk populations have greatly increased. And elk and mule deer can, in, in many instances, compete for the same space and the same food kind of thing. So mule deer populations have kind of dwindled a little bit. Now, they're not in, in dire you know, horrible, they're going to disappear kind of thing, right, nothing right. like that. But, you know, there are organizations such as the Mule Deer Foundation and, then of course, like the DSC Foundation has supported different research projects and, and management projects that the Mule Deer Foundation has done and has many sportsmen and other landowner and, and outdoor groups, you know, kind of thing to uh, to try to really truly manage and, and uh, maybe help conserve, and that meaning the wise use of, the habitat and, and a lot of things to where and a lot of things too like the the rocky mountain mule deer is pretty migratory they have they're up in the mountains during the uh well, summertime and and uh, early fall and then when the winters you know start coming the snow gets deep they migrate long distances well there were fences and highways and one of the things the mule deer foundation has done and through the different state agencies uh, wildlife agencies has gone in and built overpasses and underpasses kind of thing so these mm-hmm. these yep. animals can can go through when the winter can you know gets to the situation where they need to move but uh, 
Yeah, the mule deer to me is just is the, the most majestic animal there is in, in all of North America, particularly that big old buck. It's about 30 inches wide in terms of antlers and tall and massive. He stands on a ridge. It's one of those Chuck Morris, Norris kind of moments to where he turns his head. He doesn't turn his head. The world revolves down underneath him. So uh, anything I think that we can do to help that mule deer as a, as a species is going to not only help the mule deer, it's going to help the habitat and a lot of other critters that live there as well, too. That's true, Larry. I agree with you on the mule deer. I've hunted whitetails all my life, uh, and I love to hunt them, and I hope I can hunt them the rest of my life. But uh, mule deer, I've killed a few mule deer in my life. I, it's a treat to me to get a chance to hunt mule deer it just is you know i guess it's about time for me to take my morning uh, cruise through the woods larry <laughs> go out there and, and i'll keep my eyeballs peeled and see if i can if i see a doe i'll just uh, acting a little strange looking and peeping at me i'll back out of there because i bet there'll be a fawn close by it's that time of the year. 